good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow and I'm one of the elders here at Mercy Hill Church. What you are about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of the word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. If you have your Bibles this morning, Romans chapter 3 is where we're going to be. We're going to read through, again, verses 21 through 31, because this text is so vitally important to not only the book of Romans, but the Christian faith. Um, If we misunderstand this passage, then we really do misunderstand what was often called the, the doctrine by which the church stands or falls, justification by faith alone. And so I do want to do a brief recap because over the last couple of weeks, we have really delved into this passage because like I've already mentioned, it's so vitally important for our understanding of the Christian faith. It's so vitally important for not only our understanding of the Christian faith, but how we live inside of it. Because if we understand what's being spoken of in these few verses, then we will live a life unto the glory of God, not longing for self-glorification, not looking to self for redemption, but having our eyes fixed on Christ, we will find in him our great joy, our great delight. And so over the past couple of weeks, we've wanted to really fill the word justification full. We want us to understand what this word actually means. I mean, we say these words, justification, sanctification, glorification, and we use them, and we should use them. They're important to our understanding of the salvation that Christ has provided for us. But I fear that often these words are, are, are frailer than God has revealed them to be. The word justification is a word that is filled with glory, The word justification is a word that if we had not taken the time to look at redemption, to look at propitiation, then I fear that we would read right past it and we would go on saying things like, I have been saved. What a weak word. I have been justified. God has done a great work in me. My soul is ransomed, renewed, redeemed, and it will be that way forevermore. And so this morning, I hope, I pray that we will be able to fill this word just a bit more full to perhaps Find it overflowing for us. Because in this word, we have the richness of the glory of God. Now, with all of that said, would you please stand for the reading of God's word. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 21. We will again make our way through verse 31. I would remind you, brothers and sisters, that what you have before you is the only infallible rule of faith and practice for the Christian life. Indeed, it is truth with no mixture of error. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold it. 
Father, we come this morning, I come this morning pleading for help. Father, these things are lofty, they are lovely, and I fear that, Lord, we cannot make too much of them. And so, Father, I ask, would you help us to see the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, to see God as the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. Help us behold him. Lord, I know that our greatest need is not some behavior modification. It's the adoration of Jesus that must be prompted and must flow from our souls. And so, Father, I pray, would you help us this morning to adore him more deeply? It is in the name of Jesus and through his blood we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The sermon in a sentence this morning, even though it wildly gives away the conclusion, is that God is the just and the justifier. Christ is our justification. And that's what I want to deal with first. Christ is our justification. Like I've said over the, in the introduction, kind of walking through this, and really as has been exposited over the last few weeks, we have aimed to fill this word justification full. And in Romans chapter three, verse 25, we have this introduction to the topic at hand. And really the topic at hand is God's righteousness. And if we could go back and maybe understand why we are arriving at this particular moment, because it seems as though when you look at verse 25, this was to show God's righteousness. It's almost as if there's been some question concerning God's righteousness. Is God righteous? Is God holy? Is he truly just? And just because I think sometimes we miss the arguments that are made or maybe even that the presuppositions don't rise within us for the question to actually be asked and ultimately answered, let's consider everything that we have read thus far. We have read through Romans chapter one, two, and ultimately the first 18 verses of chapter three. And do you know what we have found? We have found that there is not one righteous, no, not one. All have turned aside and together they have become worthless. That there is only men who deserve condemnation, wrath and fury, tribulation and distress. And then you have this moment, this beautiful, astonishing moment in verse 21 that says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. And not only has God manifested a righteousness, it seems as though from these verses that he is willing to give it. That he's willing to look at the unrighteous. He's willing to look at those whose throats are an open grave, whose feet are swift to shed blood, and to clothe them with a righteousness not of their own. And as we have already seen in verse 21, it is not only just some concept of righteousness, it is the righteousness of God. Brothers and sisters, this should perhaps cause us to ask the question, how can God be just and clothe me, a ruined sinner, worthy of nothing more than tribulation and distress? How can he be righteous and clothe me with his righteousness? What is it that I truly deserve? Well, he's already told us in Romans 2, tribulation and distress. And here I stand clothed with this alien righteousness. And I think a question that needs to be asked is, is God just to do this? Can he, in perfect harmony with his nature, his being, his essence, look at ruined sinners and clothe them with a righteousness that merits them reward? Is he just? He bestows this righteousness and we see this problem really begin to be worked out in verse 22 and following. The righteousness of God. How do we receive this righteousness? Through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And then he goes on to say that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then there is this word, and are justified. 
Now, when we look at this word, this is really where we're anchoring in this morning because when we see this word justified and then you look further in verse 25, it says, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, this. What is the this in this passage? This was to show God's righteousness. This was to show and reveal the splendid, the perfect nature of God's righteousness. What is the this? Well, the this, as we look into this text, seems to be a couple of things. Three, the grace of God sets forth Christ as the propitiation of our sin. He lifts Jesus high. Now, if I could just re-articulate for just a moment this grace of God, and here I would argue that this grace of God only comes to us through the man Christ Jesus. It is not offered to you in any other way. When we speak of the five solas, we are saved saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and that last one is vitally important in Christ alone. If your faith is not laying hold of Jesus, then brothers and sisters, I'm here to tell you that there is no grace that will be conveyed to you. He only offers it in Christ. And here you see this justification. This is what vindicates, what displays his righteousness. This grace of God, this grace of God sets forth Christ as the redemption, as that one who would pay the price to see his second born, third born, fourth born, 300 millionth born come into the kingdom of God. It is here we see a lamb die for a donkey. And then we see this propitiation by his blood, this satisfactory sacrifice. So what is it that vindicates God's righteousness? It is this justification that he has set forth. It is the grace of God, the redemption that's offered through Christ and the propitiation by his blood. This vindicates God's righteousness. But let's fill this cup a bit more full. Because it seems as though that this, and if we carry and we begin to look at the full argument of Scripture, it doesn't seem to be so much that it's this justification as it is this man, Christ Jesus. Because when we look at passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we see that Jesus is our justification. Something that we are really faulted and should be faulted of doing is that we often worship the work of Christ. And hear me, brothers and sisters, we should look at it and be dazzled and amazed by it, but we worship the man, Christ Jesus. We worship the one who brought justification and redemption. We don't worship the tree, we worship the one who went to it. Jesus Christ is our justification. He is the one who was born of a woman, made like us in every way, ultimately born under the law that he might see that cup of righteousness filled full. He is the one who was cursed upon the tree that we might receive this grand and glorious blessing. He is the slaughtered Passover lamb. He is the firstborn from the dead. He is our propitiation. He is our justification. What is it that vindicates the righteousness of God? What is it that makes God able able to be the just and the justifier, the man Christ Jesus, only the man Christ Jesus. Now, the reason we must pause and do and understand the word this is because literally the righteousness of God is on the line. When we deal with this text, this language that he uses in verse 25, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. There is in question God's righteousness. Is he as right? Is he as just? Is he as holy as he said he was? If he pardons ruined sinners, if he justifies these wicked men. And that's an excellent question to ask. And so this morning, what I would like to do is see Jesus as our justification. And we will come back to that toward the end of this. But let's humor the question. Is God righteous? Is God just to save sinners? 
So first we must understand that this, this man Christ Jesus, shows us the righteousness of God in an astonishingly unique way. Notice what it says again in verse 25. This was to show, and I want you to hold this in your mind, this justification, but ultimately knowing that this justification is rooted in this man, Christ Jesus. This man, Christ Jesus, shows us God's righteousness in a glorious way. It reveals to us that God's righteousness is perfect and untainted in every capacity. Let's consider what we're looking at here. When we examine this concept of of God's righteousness, how is it, and this is a good question to ask, how is it that the man Christ Jesus reveals to us the righteousness of God, vindicates, if you will, the righteousness of God? The man Christ Jesus vindicates the righteousness of God because in it we see that God would not stay his sword on his beloved, righteous, perfect son when the sin of the world was laid upon his shoulders. He will not excuse a single trespass. He will not look at iniquity and not crush it. He will not see sin and pardon it. He deals with sin as according to his righteous nature. He perfectly exacts vengeance on every sin, trespass, and iniquity. There will not be, at the end of the age, when the books are closed, there will not be a single trespass unaccounted for and unexecuted. Every single one of them will be paid in full. Why? Because God is righteous and there is no place that he has revealed that more than in his beloved son. And if you could even think of the inter-Trinitarian relationship in this moment, because what you have is the Lord Jesus is lifted up to that tree. You have these hours of him suffering as the man and then you have this darkness that comes. And in the darkness that comes, it is that moment where the sin of all the elect of God are laid upon his shoulders. And even though I know that God's justice was so perfect and so holy that he would not hesitate for a moment, I cannot begin to fathom the depth of justice in this moment. Because you look at it and you think, this is the beloved one. This is the perfect one. This is the righteous one that deserves to be blessed. Here he has lived these 33 years without sin, spot, or any such thing. He is free from sin altogether, made like his brothers in every way, and yet there is not a single trespass that could come against him. He needs no sacrifice. You can imagine the amount of... And even if we were placed in the situation, I think here we would say, I cannot crush him. I cannot crush him. He is the beloved one. He is righteous altogether. I cannot crush him. Or perhaps we could think of him as the altogether lovely lamb of God. As we looked at last week, he is the propitiation. But isn't it interesting that in the propitiation, it's the one that, the one that must be offered is the one that we would hold most dear? It's always the spotless, precious lamb of God. Why do we not sacrifice donkeys? Why do we not sacrifice the, the blemish, the lame, the broken? But no, We would look at the one that we would perhaps bring into our home. It makes me think of that story of David and Nathan having this confrontation, this man that loves this ewe lamb that cares for it deeply. The one that was in his home. This is the beloved lamb of God. The one that is spotless. The one that we would cherish above all things. And I would perhaps look, I cannot crush him. I cannot curse him. He is the beloved one. All the blessings should be upon him. And then you look and you say, well, he's the firstborn. He's the monogenes. He's the one that Isaac foretold. He's the the precious son of God, the eternally begotten, not created. 
came born in a feeding trough. And here we see in this moment, God's righteousness so clearly demonstrated because as we would look at this righteous one and say, stay the sword, he says, drive it into his side. Why? Because God is righteous. He is holy. And he would look at his beloved son and instead of staying it like we would, and mind you, brothers and sisters, it would be wicked for God to stay that sword of justice when all the sins of the elect are laid upon his beloved son. He drives it in as we would wickedly stay it. And I would argue that nowhere in redemptive history is God's righteousness more vindicated than in the crucifixion of our Lord. Not in Noah's flood, not in the plagues of Egypt, not in the conquest of Canaan, nor the destruction of Nineveh. For at the cross, God demonstrates that if the spotless, righteous Son of Man, this beloved of God, has sin laid upon Him, God will strike with astonishing vengeance because He is just. He is just. Now, if I could make a brief application. There are some of you here this morning that believe that God will pardon you. He will not. Hear me. He did not pardon his beloved son. Do you think he will pardon you who have merited for yourself tribulation and distress? He will not. He is just. And brothers and sisters, his justice should certainly cause us to delight. But if we are not in him, then we should tremble before his justice for it will not stay his sword for the spotless lamb of God. Know for certain he will not stay it for a donkey. He will not. He will enact perfect justice altogether. He is just. Now, I think an important question to ask is Jesus is lifted up as this one who declares the righteousness of God. This justification that he's provided is shouting that God is holy and righteous and good and he will perfectly do what is right. I think the question needs to come, which is why is this question being posed? Why does Paul need to answer if God is righteous? Well, we have it very clearly in our text this morning. This was to show God's righteousness. Listen to this. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Why is there a question of God's righteousness? Because his forbearance is so great. Because his forbearance is so mighty, seemingly infinite. Now, what does it mean then that God had forbearance. We look at this verse again, Romans 3.25. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, notice the language, he had passed over former sins. So you look at this, really maybe placing it back in the context of the book of Romans. We read Romans 1, 2, and 3, and we think, how is it that any of these men are breathing? How is it that the ones who have merited for themselves tribulation and distress, how is it that Abraham, in the midst of lying and deceit, giving away of his wife, or Samson, who was over and over and over again disobedient, how is it that they continue to draw breath? Because God's forbearance is infinitely greater than anything this world could show us. Let me explain. When we deal with God's forbearance, let's first deal with the inward. When we always think about the word patience or forbearance or long-suffering, I think long-suffering perhaps is the best way to consider it. We always sometimes think about it in the extra. We always think about how it's displayed. But I think the first thing that we must consider is the inward working of it. Because when we deal with God's forbearance, it's not just that he passed over former sins. It means that God has in his restraint held back his wrath 
So let's consider for a moment these Old Testament saints. As God is looking at Abel and Aaron and Samson and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joshua and Caleb and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Daniel and Micah and Hosea and Lot and Isaiah, he looks at all of these men and mind you, we've already had in this particular text that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And as he looks at Abel, this one who is in his father Adam as well, who has sinned, he has trespassed and iniquity, God does not execute his wrath on him. Is God unjust? Where is the wrath for Abel? Why is it that Abel lived, and not only did Abel live and, and not be instantly put to death as he was born, born in trespass and iniquity, what of Abraham? Why is it that Abraham, this wicked man, if we were to just take an inventory of his life and we saw the sin that was present, we must say the same things that Romans 2 does over him, that he has merited to himself tribulation and distress. Why is it that Abraham received blessing after blessing after blessing after blessing? Why is it that he was given Isaac, this beloved offspring? Why was he promised Canaan? Why was he given all of these blessings? This is the magnitude of God's forbearance because God's forbearance is so great that there is a debt that must be paid. And Abraham with every breath is multiplying the debt that is necessary to be paid. And God bestows blessing. What of David? David. We have this, even just this small snippet. You would think that even men would look at him and say, kill him. He's adulterated. He's murdered. You see all of this wicked. And yet here we see God forbear. He withholds that wrath. That is the level of restraint that our God has. That since Adam's fall, God has forbore. He has held back his wrath. Even as men are multiplying it and multiplying it and multiplying it, it seems as though the sins and trespass and iniquity of all mankind is flowing over to such a degree that no one would be able to stay their hand. And yet God in his infinite grace does. How? And better yet, how is it then just? How is it not unrighteous? And brothers and sisters, if we didn't have this passage of scripture, then we would have to say that it is unrighteous. Because if God passes over sin, if he says, no, I must, I, I won't execute judgment, then we would be right to say he is unjust. But that is not what we see. Instead, we see that this forbearance is anchored in something. This forbearance is anchored in the man Christ Jesus. When we look at Abel and Aaron and we look at Samson and Lot and we look at Ezekiel and Jeremiah, we know this great truth, that the same salvation that we have, that justification that comes through Christ and through Christ alone, the propitiation that he made, the redemption that he paid, all of that is applied to them as well. We know this because he passed over former sins up until a certain point. And no longer does he do this in this same way that we saw for the Old Testament saints. He awaited accomplishment. And what I mean by that is that throughout redemptive history, God held back his wrath knowing, not only knowing, but even in eternity past, he had set forth this spotless lamb of God. And as Abraham sinned, as Samson was wicked, as David committed iniquity, God restrained his wrath until this very moment. 
This very moment, the scripture says, at the present time. That present time is the lifting up of our beloved Lord. He held his wrath. Even as it was being multiplied and multiplied and multiplied, he held it and waited. And he waited until that moment, that, that, that set time that God had appointed substance before the foundation of the world to execute Christ. Where was Abraham's sin? It was laid on the man Christ Jesus. Where was Samson's wickedness? It was crushed in Christ. Where was David's adultery? Where was David's murder? God executed it in the man Jesus Christ. His forbearance is so great because it is anchored in the man Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, God is not unjust. God is just altogether. And the reason that we know him to be just is because he does not pass over sin in the way that we often think. He passes over sin in such a way that it is a passing over that is filled with justice. There will not be one sin of the Old Testament saint that has not been paid for by the man Christ Jesus. He patiently waited ultimately to see all of their sin, trespass, and iniquity executed in the man Christ Jesus. He has anchored his patience in our Lord. His forbearance is so wonderful because it is just. Have you ever considered the alternative? What if God did pass over sin? What if he pretended as if it did not exist? What if he swept it under the rug? What a fearful state we would always be in. What if he remembers? What if he remembers his sin? What if, it, what if the accuser on that day of judgment says, ah, oh, but he's wicked. I remember his trespass and iniquity. What if he stands before God and says, this one is earned tribulation and distress. What if God's passing over was unjust? Brothers and sisters, then there would be no means of justification for us. There would be no means of salvation because in that very moment, God would hear the accuser and he would say, death they do deserve. And he would execute. God's forbearance is great. We see that in our Lord, we have a great Passover. And I do think that even as you look at the language of this verse, I would imagine that most of you, even in the hearing of it, immediately heard this language of passed over and you were cast all the way back into Exodus. It's an interesting language. As a matter of fact, this word passed over is the only time this word is used in the New Testament. This passed over is not a passing over in the sense that he will not pay. It's a passing over as we have already seen. I would imagine every Jew's lights went off as they heard this language because there has been a perpetual Passover. This perpetual Passover reminds us that God's justice will not be denied because he is just. But because God is just and delights to be the justifier, he stayed his hand until the fullness of time had come. The fullness of time came as Christ the Lord was lifted up on the tree. God declared that his forbearance was a forbearance that was filled with justice and righteousness by condemning in the man Christ Jesus all that he had passed over previously. And you ask perhaps, is this forbearance for me? Is this forbearance for me? Because it seems as though you read through this text and it seems as though this is something that he had done previously. We see him awaiting the accomplishment of redemption, awaiting that moment when the fullness of time had come, when Christ had been born under the law, fulfilled all righteousness and was crucified to that tree. He awaited that accomplishment of redemption. But brothers and sisters, the beauty of God's forbearance, the beauty of his patience is it is still in a glorious effect today. How is it in a glorious effect today? I think perhaps the best question to ask would be, how did you reach the point where you exhaled breath that said Jesus is Lord? 
For you had committed sin, trespass, and iniquity. You had rebelled against the God of glory. You had not adored him the way that he demands to be adored. If we were to go back into Romans 1, we see that there's in the hearts of man, and I would dare say quite clearly in your own hearts, sin, trespass, and iniquity. It says in Romans 1 that we were slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, and boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Every single one of those things deserves death. We always had this concept of a delayed death. Brothers and sisters, it's only forbearance if death actually comes. And it has come in Christ. And as we see God in the Old Testament wait for the accomplishment of redemption, so we see him now wait for its application in the life of his elect. Why is it that you made it there? Because God in his grace laid down his life on a tree that he might not lose one of those whom the Father elected before the foundation of the world. He placed blood on your doorpost before you were ever born. And by his grace, he applied it when the fullness of time had come and he was patient with you up until that point of redemption. God's forbearance is great. And it's forbearance is the reason that men might look and say, is he just? Well, we know from this previous text that this man, Christ Jesus, is the anchor of this forbearance. And you ask, is he just? Then you would say, oh, he is infinitely just. Because if you look to the tree, if you look to Christ, if you see him there, then you will see that the debt that I was owed, the debt that Abraham was owed, the debt that David had to pay, it's there. It's perfectly executed. There is no sin, trespass, and iniquity that will not be conquered. And there we see in Christ the conquering of it all for his church. That's why when we read passages like Acts 20 and we see that he bled for his church, we rejoice knowing that all the saints of God, he forbeared ultimately until he set forth Christ as that glorious payment. His forbearance is great. And so we see that God is indeed just. So the vindication of his righteousness is ultimately found in the man Christ Jesus. But as you come to the conclusion, as you come to the end of this particular section, in verse 26 it says, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be, listen to this language, these things that are diametrically opposed to one another, really be brought to harmony. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, I really want to examine this by looking at them separate from one another. Now, I know that that's perhaps not uh, the most normal thing to do, but if we don't understand the justice of God, we will never fully grasp the justification of God that is given in the man Christ Jesus. So let's consider his justice for a moment. What is necessary? What is, what is must be done for God to be just? He must condemn sinners. Every single sinner. Now let's just work this out kind of from the intra perspective when we're dealing with the, the Trinity. What is it that they must do to see justice brought? Well, it's to cast sinners into hell. And hear me, we think about this and I, I, sometimes I fear that we think of justice as, oh, well, they must die. No, 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 no they must eternally die. 
Because the debt that they owe, the price that they have, the wages that they have earned by their works is not just death a ceasing to be. They have offended the eternally holy God. That means that the payment, the thing that must be done for sinners is that God must condemn them eternally in hell, absent from his goodness, his grace, and his mercy, and only the flames of hell fueled by his wrath to be there with them. That is the just penalty. That is what is necessary for God to be just. Now, what's the conclusion of this? If we see God and he says, all I wanna be is just, all I'm gonna do is execute justice and execute justice perfectly. I have no desire to be justifier. Then we would see this, that God's righteousness and justice would be displayed. And hear me, he has every right to do that. He has every right to do that. Yes, we know him to be merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But his justice demands death. He chooses if he will be justifier. And praise be to God, he has. What does it take for God to be justifier? If he is just, just, then he will demonstrate his righteousness and his justice and we will see those things as we suffer in hell. He is righteous to condemn me. But for him to be justifier, for the work that must happen so that there can be justification, listen to the impossibility of what I'm about to say. He must condemn sinners according to his righteous standard. What is it that he must do to justify a sinner? He must condemn them according to his righteous standard. Now, there is a caveat here, as we've already mentioned. He must condemn them in such a way that they aren't eternally condemned. That is an impossibility. It's an impossibility. There's no way that God can condemn a sinner that is not eternal for they have eternally offended him. Here we have this dilemma, this major problem, and they are, brothers and sisters, hear me. These are diametrically opposed to one another. That's the reason Exodus 34, 6 and 7 is so puzzling to the Jew. How is it that he, sin, that he forgives sin, trespass, and iniquity, but does not clear the guilty? How is it that this charge, you're not righteous, cannot be rightly given to him? And not only does he have to condemn sinners in a way that is not an eternal condemnation, which would violate his justice, he must also bestow them with a righteousness that merits reward. This is the latter half of the gospel that is vitally important for us to understand. You must actually be given the works of Christ that you might merit reward. Because apart from those works, you don't deserve any reward. You're morally neutral, much like your father Adam. Give it a minute. You'll corrupt yourself again. Now, and that leads us to ask this rather question. How is it then that he's just and at the same time he is justifier? We know that he is just. There's no charge that can be made here. So how can he be the justifier? He could send one who is truly God and truly man. He must be truly God and truly man. The reason that Paul opens this book of Romans articulating the divine nature of Christ and his truly human nature is because if we don't get that right, then he can't be the justifier. If he sends his beloved son as one who is truly God and truly man, then we have in him one who is truly man that can pay man's debt. And at the same time, we have one who is truly God who can actually absorb an eternal amount of wrath in three hours. The incarnation is crucial. 
Not only that, he could bear the eternal curse and ultimately give us eternal life because the law over him shouts that there must be payment for the trespasses and sins, the breaking of the law. So what does our Lord do? He says, I'll bear the curse. And he makes so certain that we can see this by seeing that a crown of thorns would be thrust upon his head, that first indication of curse that we find in Genesis 3. And then he see him nailed to a tree, which is where the cursed ones died. He could bear the curse. He could take all my works upon himself and bear their wages, all the while bestowing me with all his works that I might receive his rich rewards. He could send the man Christ Jesus. And if he sends the man Christ Jesus, then there truly can be redemption. This Jesus could be sent. He, he, the eternally beloved of God, could be born in a manger, being made like his brothers in every way. He could live free from sin. He could fill the cup of righteousness, lay down his life on a cursed tree with the sins of all his elect upon his shoulders, declare that God is just by his death. He could raise from the dead for our justification, clothe us with his perfect righteousness, sit down at the right hand of the Father, and ever live to mediate for his people. In this, and in this alone, is God just and the justifier. But hear me. It is Christ who is our justification. We read this and we see God is just and the justifier. We worship and we worship rightly. But but brothers and sisters, when you look to the Lord Jesus Christ, he is our justification. You cannot find it apart from him. There was one means of redemption and it was in the sending of this beloved, spotless lamb of God who did not deserve to be crushed and he was crushed for us. So what then is displayed about our God when he is just and the justifier? It is not just his justice and righteousness that is made abundantly clear. Yes, those are clearly seen. But in the crucifixion, in the death of our Lord, in the lifting up of Christ who is our justification, we see God as the merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, God who is just and the justifier. One final point. I want you to notice the language in this last phrase. So that he might be just and the justifier. Now, there's a really important statement here that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Everyone gets justice. Everyone. If you be in Christ, you look to the cross and you say, there was justice served. You say, there, my penalty was paid. There, the record of debt that I had accumulated was canceled. But if you are not in Christ, then that phrase, the just of God, should cause you to quake because he is just a fire of only the ones who have faith in Jesus Christ. And if you find yourself here this day and you have not looked to him, you have, you have seen and you have perhaps heard the singing of the saints, you have heard the proclamation of the gospel and you think, ah, oh, it seems as though they love this Jesus. Is it any wonder that we love him? And here you sit dead in your trespasses and sins and you think that he might pass you by. He will not pass you by. He is just. Unless you look at him in faith, unless you rejoice in him, unless you delight in him, then your penalty will be paid by you. And that eternal wrath will not be sedated. It will not be made more light. It will all come 
And it will come and it will come eternally. Everyone gets justice. But brothers and sisters, if you are here and you have laid hold of Christ by faith, what great hope we have. He has not passed over our sins in the ways that they might be brought up again. Our accuser has no arsenal to fire at us because when we hear those accusers' accusation, we remember that we have an advocate with the Father, that that advocate is also our propitiation, that that advocate is our redemption, that that advocate is our justification. And we will stand before God on that great day and say this, not I, but Christ in me.